If you turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to find it almost square in the middle of your Bible. If you're here this morning and you are uh, new to church or new to the Bible or you don't have a Bible, uh, if you don't have a Bible, see me afterwards. We'd love to get you a Bible. Uh, but if you're not familiar with your Bible or if you're um, maybe one of those people who's trying to figure this thing out and where in the world is this crazy book of Ecclesiastes, it is almost square in the middle of your Bible. You're going to see a large book, Psalms, and then you're going to run into uh, Proverbs, and then you'll hit Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, turn here to chapter 7. We're going to do a lot of movement this morning. I just want to kind of sit up front, and this message is going to be very different those of you who come, kind of come here week in and week out, you're going to find this message to be very different than what we normally do because instead of just kind of building on one key thought and kind of working towards it, there's going to be, we're talking about Proverbs. We're getting to the section of the book where what really happens is Solomon has kind of observed his life and he said, this is how you enjoy life. And then he's come to the section where he says, okay, I've looked at other people's lives and how they've tried to do life and I've observed them. And then he just kind of lays out now in this section some some statements about how to do life. And at times, some of them look like they maybe don't make a lot of sense or they say they pushed back on some, maybe some assumptions we've made about life. And so it's kind of hard to teach proverbial statements as one solid, steady flow. So it's going to be a lot of, we'll talk about one subject and that subject and then move on to the next one. Again, keep in heart, the bigger picture of what we're really talking about is most of us in this room understand that, that we want to really live life and do it well. And we, most of what we do, we do because we're pursuing happiness and we want to really enjoy life. And we want to know the meaning of life. And Solomon wrote this book years ago, uh, just kind of talking about that very subject. So that's what we've been uh, talking about. Final thing I'll say is keep in mind too, that though we're talking a lot about a proverbial things to do, to live out. Um, if you're here this morning and you say, I'm a Christian, Keep in mind, and if you're just going to say, I'm not a Christian, it's something for you to keep in mind as well, um, that the message of Jesus, the gospel message, is not primarily a way of life, and it's also not primarily something that we do, but something that has been done for us, and then we in turn respond to it. So, though we're going to talk about a lot of things to do, and if, even if without Jesus, if you go out and do some of these, you're going to, I think, enjoy life. Uh, but to the very core of it... You want to do them with Jesus uh, or else you're really not going to, at the end, enjoy life. With that said, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, the very first subject, the very first kind of proverb we're going to talk about. I tried to pick, there's so much we could talk about. I tried to pick ones that really help you and help me in our practical everyday lives. The first one is rebuke and criticism because I think, um, I don't know about you, but I get this at times, um, I think you probably get it at times. We have it in our families. We have it in our workplaces. We have it on Facebook. We have it on Twitter. We're very critical culture. We'll, we'll just spout stuff off in a hurry. So first one, how do we handle it? Look at uh, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 5 is the very first thing we'll kind of talk about. It says there, it is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. So right out of the gates, one of the things we want to talk about is this can be very positive. A lot of us think this right out of the gates and we think negative. When we see those two words up there, we think, oh my goodness, run for the hills. But it really can be a very positive thing. But he says you, what you want to do is listen to the wise person and not the fool. And it actually describes the fool as having, it's kind of like a song. And I think what, what Sol, uh, Solomon's getting at here is he says when a fool speaks to you to give you advice, it sounds so good. It's beautiful. I mean, it sounds, I mean, it tickles the ear. It, it may make you laugh. It, 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 man, that's good stuff. And, but he's saying, don't run after it. The wise person is going to rebuke you and it may hurt. 
It may be hard, and you may not want anything to do with it, but listen to him. Now, let's look at how to turn. Look at chapter 10. Because in this book, and there's a couple places we could have done it, so I'm just going to pick this one. Uh, there's a description of, okay, so who's the wise person? Who's the fool? So who should I listen to in my life, and who should I kind of tune off, turn the hearing aid down? Uh, chapter 10, look at verse 12. Words from a wise man's mouth are what? If you have an NIV Bible, what's it say? Gracious. So if you have people in your life who you can look at and say they are gracious people, their life and their words are typically, I would describe them as gracious. They're the kind of people you want to open your ears to. Okay, now he's going to describe a fool. Okay, and I hope he's not describing you, but some of you may find yourself here. I hope that's not true, but you probably, most of you in this room know someone described like this. Here it comes. But a fool is consumed by what? His lips. A fool's mouth just runs. And his life is chewed up by what he says. And he goes on to say this. At the beginning, his words are folly. So when you first hear them, they don't, eh, come. okay, dude, you got issues. But then look what it says. At the end, they are full-blown wicked and even madness. So in other words, they don't make logical sense. Some of you talk to people and you say, man, I, they just don't make sense. Oftentimes, it's like a fool gets all worked up. So when you confront a fool or if you push back on a fool, they just start to get irrational and they talk faster. They talk more. They talk angry. And, and after a while, they're saying things that you're like, didn't you just say something different two minutes ago? And, and again, so and look what it goes on to say. And the fool multiplies words. They don't listen. They don't ask questions. They don't just stop and reflect. Their mouth runs. Some of you heard it called diarrhea of the mouth. It just goes. Now, look at, how, look at how it keeps moving. Verse 14. No one knows what is coming. In other words, you aren't a fool. You can't even predict. Some of you know people like this. You don't know what's going to come out of their mouth next. Who can tell him or her what will happen after him? And you can't give them counsel. You can't speak back to them. They don't know what's coming. A fool's work wearies him. He does not know the way to town. I mean, he soon, a fool left to their own ends will soon get to the place where they're just flat out confused in life. Final verse I'll give you, chapter 7. Look at verse 21. Chapter 7, verse 21. says it this way, talking about criticism. Now, this one... When I hear this verse, it makes me smile. When I first read this and I studied this and looked at this, I I put a smile on my face. Verse 21, do not pay attention to every word people say. Isn't that a cool statement? Doesn't that give you some peace in life? Don't pay attention to every word people say. Or if you do, you may hear your servant. Now, I know most of you in this room, I hope, don't own slaves and Maybe if people work for you and some of your bosses and have employees, but it's just people in your life. You're soon going to hear people in your life. Look what it says, cursing you. Now, I love what he says next, verse 22. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others, right? How many of you have ever vented or just blew off some steam? Husbands, you know, you get home from work and, and you had a bad day and, and your poor wife is standing there and she just gets the brunt of it. And there it comes. And you have all kinds of nice things to say, very kind things to say for the people you've been working with all day, right? Or women, you, um, when, you know, maybe wives, you, something with the kids, okay? You know, you're sitting there, maybe you're, you've been home all day with the kids and then the husband comes home and there it all comes. Now, if you stop and you ask both of those people in those moments, do you, you ask the wife, do you love your kids? What's she going to tell you? Yes, I love my kids, but they make me mad. Or you ask the, the husband in that situation, 
Do you really care for the people you work with? Yes, I care for them. I'm just blowing some steam off. We do this, right? So it's funny. We look at ourselves as we're pretty good people. I'm a, Adam, you're a pretty good guy. So I do it. So why do I get so upset when you do it? Can I let you blow some steam off? So what he's saying is, is don't get so worked up about what people say to you. Here's, here's the way I would sum this up. Some of us in this room, I may at times put myself in this, our skin's a little thin. Some of us just honestly care way too much about what others think of us. And life is going to be pretty tough if I'm so concerned with what you say about me. Okay? It doesn't work. Life doesn't work well when I am consumed with what you have to say. Because keep in mind, you may say bad things about me, but guess what? <laughs> I may be saying bad things about you. And I love you. So why can't I trust that you love me? Uh, so again, just be careful with criticism, rebuke. Now, next one. Next subject. I picked this one out because I think most of us in this room have a boss of some kind or another. And our boss, one way or another, is going to radically impact your life. The kind of leader that you live with and you work with is going to deeply impact the enjoyment factor of your life, of my life. Now, when I put the boss in quotes there, because boss could be for the teens and the children in the room, it could be your mom or your dad, you know, a boss. There they are living at home with you and they feel like a boss and a manager. For some of you, it could be your husband. For some of you, it could be your teacher. For some of you, it could be the CEO of the company or you're the mid-level manager or the, the doctor that you report to or the whatever in your context, the leader that, that is in your sphere of influence. How do you interact with leaders? Now... Here we go. First of all, turn to chapter 10. Solomon actually has a lot to say in this one, and I'm going to try and be really practical to help us because I think this one really impacts, again, our enjoyment in life. Understand, first of all, that not all people are leaders. Okay? And not sometimes you have a person who's a leader in your sphere of influence who shouldn't be there. Okay, they have the position of leadership, but they don't have the authority of leader. Okay, look at chapter 10, verse 5. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of air that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. See what he's saying? There are people in positions of leadership that just don't belong in leadership. And it makes for a mess in life. Here's, I, I talked with someone recently that really I just, I loved when they said this to me. It meant a lot, it ministered to me. They were talking about an opportunity of advancement in their company. And what I find a lot of times is, is we think that the higher I get on the ladder, the happier I'm going to be in life. And if I can get into that corner office with the windows, I'm going to make it. Because not only am I going to make it, now I can finally tell everyone else how to live. And I can finally be the one that's going to make, I'm going to fix this place. We begin to think that way. And life's going to be good for me. And this person said to me, I said, well, they, they were talking about an advancement, an opportunity. And they said, well, I'm, I don't really want the position. I, I just, I couldn't believe the, he said, honestly, Adam, I don't think I'm wired for it or gifted for it. I don't think it's where God would want me. That is a wise person. I think sometimes we in life think if I can just get to that boss position, my life is going to be better. And actually, life gets worse for you if you're not wired for it, and it gets pretty bad for the people around you. So again, I think that's the first one to understand is not all leaders are created equal. Second thing, leaders make a really big difference in your life. And I want to just say this right up front because if you're struggling because of a, a bad leader, 
Solomon gets it and there's empathy for you. Look at chapter 8, look at verse 11. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Right? Does that make sense? So if you let someone get away with it once, all the people around are going, oh, I can do that too. And suddenly the evil spreads. I've got little kids at home. So if they know that the consequence for this behavior is they lose the Wii for a week, that's, that's, that's brutal punishment for them. I mean, take the Wii away there. Honestly, I said to one the other day, I do spank. I, I know this is recorded now online, and I'm going to get all kinds of trouble for saying that for certain people. But we, we do use the rod in our home. And um, I'm not saying it's for everyone, but we believe we have a conviction in that ourselves. So I, I gave one recently the option. Would you rather have the Wii taken away for just two days or receive a spanking? You know what he said to me? I'll take the spanking. So again, if, if they do something that they know means we lose the we, but I don't take the we, guess what the other kids start to do? Oh, yeah, all right. I'm, and, it, and so again, if I'm not a consistent leader, I can radically impact the harmony of my home in a big way. And this happens in your workplace. It happens in the church. Look at chapter 10. Here's another one. Chapter 10, verse 16. Very first thing, he's going to talk about a bad leader. Look at the very first thing he says, woe to you. I mean, there's a curse upon you. It's going to be very bad for you. Woe to you, O land, whose king or country, whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. That's not talking about a servant as someone who cares for people. That's talking about someone who's not gifted. Their, their gift is a servant role in the, in the, in the flow and the scheme of life, but they slipped into the leader role. Or if the leader is someone who is leading for their own ends, they're just doing it for the next party so that they can now do it their way, the way they want to do it. And they want to enjoy life the way they do life and they're going to, so again, if they're living for that, we're going to suffer. So if in your job or in your home, or you've got a bad leader, the reality is suffering will happen. The company will struggle. Your home will struggle. The church will struggle, etc. Verse 17, then blessed are you. So things are going to go well with you. O land and country whose king and leader is of noble birth, meaning they actually are gifted for this. They're trained for this. They're wired for this and whose princes eat at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So in other words, they're leaders who have control of themselves and who are here because they're serving the people, not themselves. It's going to go really well for you. So again, I just want to acknowledge if you've got a boss that is a bad boss, you're going to struggle. So what do I do with it? Okay, good, great question. Look at chapter eight. Look at chapter eight, verse two. You've got a bad boss and I've got something weighing in my heart and I need to let him know. What, how do I handle it? Glad you asked. Solomon's going to give you the answer. Chapter eight, verse two. Very first word. What's the very first word? Obey. Obey the leader. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. I pause here. This one, I just want to drill a little deep, drill some depth to. Our culture today, we don't do so good at this. I don't do so good at this. We roast our leaders that we do not like. We're quick to hop on Twitter and Facebook and every other place to decry and say how horrible our U.S. president is or how horrible our pastor is or how horrible our husbands are or how horrible. And we, we just go at this thing. 
And I love the statement here is not only do you want to obey them, but keep in mind you took an oath before them. You say, what does that mean? Romans chapter 13 talks about, let's just talk about our U.S. president. He was placed there by God. Sure, we voted, but God placed him there. And he put him there for a reason. I think of David. If any of you are watching the Bible experience right now on the History Channel, if not, I'd recommend it's great. Jump in on it. This tonight they get to Jesus. The whole Jesus thing happens tonight when he calls his disciples. And I so again, it's a little gruesome for the younger viewers in the room. I, I will say that. Just give you that warning. But on the History Channel tonight at eight o'clock. But a few weeks ago, if you've been watching it, they went through David, King David. Okay, King David was a shepherd boy when the prophet of God came to him and said, listen, the hand of God has left the king of Israel, who was at the time was Saul. God has removed his hand from them and you are going to be the next king. Now, could you imagine being told that? Yeah, here we go. Let's get in there. Now, Saul, in the meantime, loses his mind. He goes, I mean, it actually says an evil spirit takes over, and he is jacked up. And he gets to the place where he, he tries to kill David. He, I'm going to just take David out. David flees. He runs away with a bunch of men. He goes, and, and these men, they're hiding one day in a cave, and, and they actually captured this on the History Channel's version. Uh, Saul and his men are pursuing David. The country's falling apart because Saul isn't leading it. He's spending more time chasing this guy named David. David's in a cave, hiding out with his men. Saul and his men are moving through the valley. Saul decides he's got to go to the bathroom. And this text actually says this. So he goes into the cave, the text says, to relieve himself. I mean, I love the humor of the, of the Bible at times. He's in the cave, going to the bathroom and you could you imagine if you're david what do you think god has just delivered the throne on a silver platter right here to me so david pulls a knife and he approaches saul to take him out saul has no idea he's there and as david's approaching the scriptures talk about his heart and his conviction is that god has called saul to be king he is the anointed leader of this nation and who am i to take him out so instead of killing him, he cuts a piece of his clothes off, his, his robe. And when Saul gets himself back together, leaves the cave, David then holds it up and says, Hey, Saul, just so you know, I could have taken your life right here. David understood clearly that God anoints and appoints leaders. And, and no matter how horrible they are, David honored that leader and would not take matters into his own hands. Now, he ran for his life, and he did some other things that were wise, that protected himself. And he didn't do things that were dishonoring to God, but he honored the leader. We are horrible at this in our Western culture. Horrible. I'm horrible at this. God has given us leaders for a reason, and and it says you've taken an oath. Follow them, and for you to disobey them, you're actually violating, violating your word to God as your leader. Now... Okay, let's keep reading. So what do I do then, though? I've got a cruddy leader. How do I handle this? Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. So hang out there. Listen to him. Take him in. Do not stand up for a bad cause. So be careful about the things that you stand up for. Okay, is this really something I'm willing to die for? Am I willing to be cast out for this? Really think through that. For he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Verse five, whoever obeys his command, look at this, will come to no harm. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. 
For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. This is crucial. Though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. See what he's saying? Obey the king, honor him as God has placed him above you, and look for the proper time to speak. See, some of us have this misery placed in on us because we got a cruddy leader. Things need to change and they need to change now. So we rush into their office at our first opportunity. See what Solomon's saying? Let the misery hang out. Let it push in. Let it, let it press back. And pray to God and talk to him for the right time and take it when, it, when the door opens. Don't push yourself in on this. Okay, there's some other advice he gives you. Look at, look at chapter 10, verse 4. If a ruler's anger rises against you, so say your leader just can't stand you. Look what it says. Do not leave your job. Don't leave your post. Calmness can lay great errors to rest. In other words, stay calm, relax, rest, take it easy, continue to serve, and you'll be amazed at the errors that begin to iron themselves out. Now, look at um, next one. Look at chapter 10, verse 20. This one, again, this one's one that makes me smile when I think about this. But those of you who are in leadership, you're going to, I think this one will resonate with you. Uh, and, and for all of us, I hopefully it gives us some help. Do not revile the king or your leader, even in your, look at this. Not only don't do it on Facebook, don't do it on Twitter, don't do it around the dining room table. But what's it say? Don't even think bad about them where? In your thoughts. Don't even think about evil about them or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird of the air may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Get what he's saying? Do you know, I've learned, I've, I've had a number of leadership from volunteer posts in, in churches where I've served as a leader to I worked one time as a closing, I hated this job, <laughs> closing manager in a family restaurant. I couldn't wait to get out of that. Uh, I've worked in camp ministries where I, I was in leadership there. I've been, had leadership, paid leadership roles in churches. And what I have discovered is there are certain people who will carry your words to the leader almost always. So when you run your mouth, there's other people listening And there's other people that really want to impress that leader. And there are other people who think as you do. So guess what they're going to do? They're going to go to the leader and say, Adam, do you know what so-and-so is saying? And then they use this, they, they have said, or she has said, or, and, and they soon start reporting it. Guaranteed, if you and your company or in your family or here in the church are saying bad things about the leader, guaranteed the leaders heard about it. I'm amazed at how many things make it into my office, but the person didn't come with them. It's amazing to me. It's very sad too. And what also I've learned to do, when the person brings the report to me, I'd say I really encourage you to have them come to me, number one. And might you think the same thing? Because oftentimes it's what I learned. The person who carries it to me thinks a lot like that person. That's why they're bringing it. They're not brave enough to tell me themselves, so they'll bring it because they've heard someone else say it. So again, be really careful how you even think about a leader because honestly, this, this to help you, what do you do when you know someone's out talking bad about you? Do you want to draw close to that person or push them further away? What do you really want to do? So if you want your boss's favor, what happens when your boss knows you're talking bad about him? They're going to react just like you do. They're going to distance themselves. 
Your chances for advancement and your chances for raises have, have minimized and decreased. So again, be really careful how you handle your boss. Look for the right time. Obey them. Um, hang out at your post. Doesn't mean there's not ever times to leave, but, but again, next subject. Put that one to bed. Let's go into the next one. The good old days, right? Here's a good one. I love this one. Chapter seven. Look at chapter seven. We do this one a lot. (laughs) Chapter seven. Look at verse 10. Solomon says it this way. Do not say where were the, where were the old, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Don't we do this one a lot? We do this one a lot. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, let's, let's just be really candid here. Don't we do this a lot? Whether it's an old boyfriend or a girlfriend that, man, we look back now with rose-colored glasses and now they offer a friendship to us on Facebook and my relationship, let's say your relationship with your spouse is just not good and you think, hey, you know what? I really did like that person. Well, there's a reason you broke up, right? There's a good reason you broke up. There were problems, so then you friend them, and next thing you know, you're into a relationship with them, and suddenly you're realizing, oh, yeah, I remember these problems. And now you've got a bigger problem because you've got problems here and you've got problems there. Or we do this. We do this through we live through our glory days of high school. I'm amazed at how many old men are still talking about being the quarterback of the football team. And I'm like, really, dude? Really? Have you not graduated? Have you not lived life past high school? Or, or the people who decry and they, the, oh, the moral fiber of today's generation is so horrible because I remember in the good old days, really? Were the 1950s that much better? You say, sure, Adam, if you were a middle-class white man, they were great. But how about an African-American or a female? They were pretty poor, weren't they? Or I remember recently, I mean, when my dad lost his mom when he was four years old, never knew her. And recently, we were, they sold their home that we, he grew up in. He spent his whole life there. And I grew up in that home. And they recently sold this, the home. And so they were cleaning out the attic to their garage. And they come across a box with her diaries in them and letters that were written to her. Now, these would have been written back in the early, early 1920s, 1930s, and some of them into the 40s. And I remember we we're sitting around the table reading these letters. Holy cow. They had problems with sex and drugs and alcohol back then too. I couldn't believe it. I'm reading the intense personal thoughts of someone in a better moral society than we have today. They got the same problems we do, but they look different. Or I've had this experience. You, you get to the $5 bin at Walmart, you know, those cool DVDs. You just can't wait to find a good deal. And you, I love, I've caught some of you and some of you've caught me digging through them and trying to find a good deal. Found one one time. I'm like, yeah, I remember this movie. My parents love this movie. They showed it to us. We get, we get out in the car. We buy the thing. We put it in the DVD player in the van and we're heading down the road. And all of a sudden I look at Tanya. She looks at me and we say, do we really want our kids hearing this? This is horrible. Because one of the things I've learned of those old cartoons, they were sarcastic and nasty and full of bullying. Now, bullying has been stamped out of the schools today. You don't even, and you hardly see any nasty, sarcastic talk in cartoons today. Now there's sexual innuendos and other things that they may not have had back then. But it's so funny how we look to the past as though it was so much better than today. And I'm like, really? Maybe in certain areas, but in other areas, we got a leg up on them. 
So he says, don't let, now, I think the reason we do this, we do this in the church too, right? We talk about the church being so much better back then, and they had hymns back then, and we got these crazy praise songs, and they dress like this, and we dress like that. Really just living today. Most of us view the past better than it actually was. I think it's, it's we, we just do this. Now, I think why we do it is a really good thing. Think about this. I think it's a gift from God, but many of us don't use it as a gift. I think what it does is it helps me look back and forget the pain and the hardship and the injustice and the hurt of my home. It helps me look back and forget about that person who stuck the knife in my back. Because when time begins to push away, the deep emotion and the hurt begins to lessen and shorten. So I think God's given this ability for us to look back and forget as a gift. But most of us don't use it as a gift. We yearn for those days as though they're better than today. And it really hurts us in how we're living today. The next one then. How about the future? This is where I am. I say, well, forget the past. I'm a visionary. I want the ideal future, and I live out there in the future somewhere. Well, let's take a look at this one. This one's got some problems with it too. Look at chapter 8. Look at verse 7. It says this, Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? Do any of you know the future? Some of us think we do, right? Some of us think the economy is about ready to completely and totally crash. And I see people selling stuff and ready to move into their bunkers. And I'm like, really? Do you really know that? No, it might. But it might not. We might have some really good days ahead of us yet. So I just, I, we don't know the future. Look at verse 8. No man has power over the wind to contain it. So no one has power over the day of his death. I mean, we just, we can't, we don't know the future. Look at chapter 7, verse 14. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, considered God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about the future. Look at chapter 11, verse 4. <laughs> this, for those of you who are in business, you may enjoy this one. I think it goes for all of us, though. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. So again, I mean, we can sit and look at all the signs of the time to try and help us act, but he's just saying, just go out and act. Go out and bring your harvest in. Go out and plant. Don't sit around and and try and interpret the signs of the time. So I think many lose the battle long-term because I'll speak for myself. I look out there at the ideal, what could be in my own life and church life. And my, I look at the ideal and then I look at today and think, oh my goodness, I am so far from that. And I just, it, it, almost disables me and I get discouraged. I love what Craig Rochelle says. He's one of the pastor in Oklahoma city. He says it this way. Now I put this on the screen because when you hear this, you're going to think, what on earth I will do today, what I can do to enable me to do tomorrow, what I can't do today. All right. There's a mouthful. Let me say it again. I will do today what I can do to enable me to do tomorrow, what I can't do today. In other words, don't dream of the future. Do something today. And in doing something today, I enable myself to do something tomorrow, which eventually I might get to the future that I dream of. So again, live in the moment. Don't get lost dreaming about the future. Now, the final subject, and this is a fun one. I saved this one for the end. Here it is. Eat, drink, and be merry. Some of you can finish the quote, right? Some of you know it. For tomorrow we 
die. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is one of the most repeated themes in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it troubles a lot of conservative Christian thinkers. They don't know what to do with this. Eat, drink, and be merry. So let's talk about what we do with it. And here's my big heart for this one. I believe we forget to do this. Those are us, when I say we, Christians, people who have grown up in the church, we forget that we are commanded and told to do this. Look at chapter 9. Chapter 9 is in a context. It's, it's in this incredible context where verses 1 to 12 are basically saying, actually, let's look down at verse 12 or verse 11 when he sums up this whole section. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. So he says, I don't matter how smart you are, how fast you are, how talented you are. I don't matter how hard you work because guess what? You can work really hard and it's not going to mean tomorrow is going to be good for you because there's time and chance. So it's in this whole context of, of you don't know the future. You can't predict the future. Time and chance happen to every single one of us. Now, so in the context of that, in that whole section, look at verse 7 of chapter 9. So go eat your food with gladness. And drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. It is now. Live in today, for tomorrow we die. Live well today. God God has a smile on you. He favors you. So go do it well. Always be clothed in white. That's a reference to live well. Do seek to obey God. And always anoint your head with oil. That's a sign of be happy. Put a smile on. Don't walk around depressed and woe is me. I'm such a sinner. I've, I might as well go pound dirt. I mean, walk around with a smile. And then I love this one. Verse 9. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. Go enjoy life in your marriage. Now, Some of you want to finish the rest of that, right? All the days of this meaningless life. Some of you may feel like your marriage is more of that than it is the enjoyment side. But he says, go and enjoy. Enjoy your marriage. Have fun. Do this thing well. Eat, drink, and be merry. Next verse. Look at chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of his life God has given him under the sun. So in other words, guess what? Your life is a gift from God. Go and enjoy it. Have fun. Smile. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Some of you in this room would say, I'm a wise person. Well, does your face tell us that? Who is the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. I've seen some people who think they're pretty holy, and they look like they've just eaten nails and are ready to spit them out. And I want to say to them, you're really not that holy. Because if you were, your face would tell us you were. Smile. A wise person is happy. They have a bright face, a bright countenance. They're fun to be around. They don't depress you when you leave their presence. Look at chapter 11, verse 6. Sow your seeds in the morning. Go out and work hard, in other words. And in the evening, let your hands what? Here's one some of us need to think about. We can't work 24-7. 
Go out and work hard. Sure, work hard, but then be idle. Rest. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that. Again, it's, it's in the context of the few. You don't know the future. Work hard, but then take a break. Now, chapter 10, verse 19, and this is the one we're going to dig a little deeper with. This is my new life verse. I've shared this one with you before. I, I read this, and I smile every time I read it. A feast is made for what? We know that, right? A lot of you have grown up in Mennonite conservative cultures, and what do you do every time you get together? You have food, right? You eat. You can't get together without food. I need food. And when there's food, we usually smile. Food makes me happy. I mean, a way to a man's and a way to most of our, our hearts is through our stomach. I mean, we get together, so we get that. Well, now these next two statements mess us up. And wine makes life what? Really? Now, this next one, I think, is going to confound us even more. But money is the answer for what? Really? Really? There's one we can take, roll up, stick in our pipes, pipes and smoke it. I mean, there is, a, there is a crazy verse for us. Now, let's unpack this one. Let's start backwards and let's talk about money first. Flip back to chapter 5. Pastor Chris referenced this verse a few days ago. Or a few weeks ago, I mean. Chapter 5, verse 10. I want to point out what he's not saying first. You've got to take the writer in the full context of everything he's saying. Chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. So what's he talking about here? The love of money. He's not just talking about money. He's talking about a heart attitude towards money. The love of money. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except the feast his eyes on them? Verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him what? No sleep. So Solomon is not telling us to love money and chase after it. So what is he telling us? Money is the answer to everything. I believe here's what he's saying. I believe here is what he's saying. He says, enjoy your wealth. I'm not going to read it now, but chapter 5, verse 19 says it well. Enjoy your wealth. Here's how I'd say this. It is really hard to do life without money. My life falls apart. I've seen marriages fall apart. Homes fall apart, churches fall apart, businesses fall apart, countries fall apart without money. You cannot do life without money. Let me say it again. I think this is when we let sink in for us. Some of us, I think, have grown up in a culture that think, looks at money as though it's evil and bad. Ooh, money. He has money. They're bad. No. You can't do ministry. You can't do life. You can't do marriage. You cannot do business. You can't do countries. You can't do period without money. You take money away, you can't. Missionaries would be coming home from the fields. Money is necessary to live in this life. It's the answer to everything. And I think what happens, here's what happens in my, as I stand back and watch this. Those that have money begin to forget this. And those that have money begin to think that they have money because they've done life so well. And they forget that God maybe has just smiled on them. 
And what ends up happening is then they look back at those that don't have money and they say, my goodness, they make some poor choices. And what they forget is if they were in that same position, they would make some of the very same choices. What I have learned, people that do not have money and really truly, I'm talking about don't have money, period. I mean, some of us say we don't have money, but we have money. I'm talking about people that really truly do not have money. What I have seen is they actually work harder than those that have money. You say, what? Talk to them sometime. They can't just walk into a store and leave with everything they need. They've got to shop and they've got to hit multiple stores. They've got to look through all the circulars, cut coupons. They've got to go stand in line to get their food stamps. They've got to be grilled and questioned by this government agency and make phone calls here and chase down this and come over here. And it's hard work and it traps them down in the system. And I've heard stories of this. It's hard to get out of that then. They work very, very hard. So I'll be very honest. One of the things that I've learned from my conservative upbringing is I've been taught to kind of frown upon those that have money. That's garbage. I don't know how to say it. We can't do this church without money. You can't do life without money. So a lot of ways, be careful with your attitude towards money. And if you have money, what I have learned, my observation in life is those that have money are often people that handle it well. Often, not always true, but and, and what they've learned is to bestow it upon those that do not. They don't sit in judgment of those that don't have money. Instead, they open their hand up and help those that, because they understand how hard it is to live there without means. So again, that's the first one. Now let's back up into the next one. How about wine makes life merry? Now let me just give a precursor. We're gonna, I'm going to walk on some slippery slopes here. I understand that. I fully get that. I'm going to do my very best to... to to state some of this, what I am not, what I am not talking about is living for the party. And I'll show you some verses in a minute where Solomon wasn't either. I also fully, fully acknowledge alcohol can destroy a life. I want to state that right up front. Young people, especially don't run to it. It jacks your life up. I cannot say this more boldly. I want to, people have accused me at times of being friendly with alcohol. I don't think the scriptures teach us not to drink. They teach us to be very careful with it, but the scriptures also tell us that it is dangerous stuff. So I am not, I just want to state that right up front. Make sure that's very clear. But here's the flip side. I think some of us treat it like those who drink are just some kind of evil, terrible people. And you want to be careful. Deuteronomy chapter 14 And this is going to tie the laughter and the wine together. Deuteronomy chapter 14. Maybe go and look at it this week. Deuteronomy chapter 14. It's the founding of the nation of Israel. God is passing on the commands and the laws of how to do this thing well called called Israel. And he says, here's what I want you to do. One time a year, I want you to excel or or come into the the place where the the, um, Ark of the Covenant is, where my presence is. I want you to bring a tenth of everything that you've produced, the cattle and your crops that year. And I want you to come and basically have a party. And if you live too far away and you can't bring all your stuff, he says, sell every tenth of your stuff, sell it and go on vacation and come and have a good time. And then he slips this verse in. Now, this is God. Keep in mind this. Some of us, this is this just messes us up. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 26. Use the silver that you've sold a tenth of all your stuff, a tenth. Use your silver. What's it say? For whatever you like. 
The King James Version actually says whatever your heart lusts after, what you desire, what you crave, use a tenth of your stuff and go have a good time. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink. God is commanding them. It's okay. Go do this. Have a party or anything that you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there. Now, this is crucial because most people that are out drinking are not doing this part of it. This is where this is so important to me. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of who? The Lord, your God. And what's the final one? So basically what he's saying is your life is a gift. I've given you your life and I want you to acknowledge that. I want you to take a tenth of your stuff, go on vacation and have a really good time. And in my presence, you're basically going to say to me, to God, he's saying, you're going to say to me that God, thank you for the life that you've given me. Now, most people aren't drinking for that reason. Most people aren't drinking because they're miserable with the life that God's given them. So again, I, I, I know this is... Again, this cause some discussion for you later, but let, let me talk about the laughter part. This life is hard and suffering knows no end. And if I honestly can't learn to laugh, okay, if, if I can't learn to laugh, life is going to kill me. This past week, one of our elders passed on, was doing a devotion with a group of guys that I happened to be in the presence there of, of that meeting. And I was listening to him talk and I asked if I could have his notes because he said some really cool things. Here's what he said. Children are said to laugh. How many times do you think a child laughs in a day? Now, I don't know who studies these things. I don't know how they figure these things out. How many times in a day does a child laugh? 300 to 400 times in a day. Let me ask this one. How many times do you laugh in a day? Do you know what they say about adults? Us grown-ups? Do you know how many times we laugh in a day? Let me see a show of hands. How many of you think that it's more than 20? Come on. I see some of you. Okay, good. You're brave. It's about 20. 15 to 20 times a day. Isn't that crazy? 15 to 20 times a day. Now, now let's, let's go forward a little bit. Who in the Bible loved children. Jesus. He loved them. Who in the Bible tells us to not grow up, but grow down and become more childlike? Jesus. Jesus loved kids. Do you know why I think Jesus loved kids? Jesus loved to laugh. Kids, kids, kids have an uncanny ability to look into your soul. And when they see a grumpy, angry person, they don't like to be around them. I've learned this over and over. Sometimes kids don't want to be around me. It's okay. You can laugh. I, that's, that's, I'm trying to laugh. Go ahead. So again, I think laughter is so important to really enjoy life. Experts say, again, this is studied stuff. Experts say that laughing aids in digestion. Laughing lowers blood pressure. Laughing reduces stress hormones. Laughing increases muscle flexion, which then prevents injury because I'm more flexible. Laughing boosts the immune system. Laughing triggers the release of endorphins, which are the body's natural painkillers. So maybe instead of the ibuprofen, I should learn to laugh. I mean, it's like... I just, I want to, I look at Christians sometimes and think, man, smile. 
Some of us think that, I think we need to remind ourselves that it's holy to laugh. It's okay to have fun because this life is hard. I think God knew this. If we take ourselves too seriously, it's going to be a difficult life. Now, here's what I'm not talking about. Look at chapter 7. Okay, again, I know we're in some dangerous territory, but I just want to talk about chapter 7 a minute. Look at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of what? Our culture, you know what that would say? It is better to hang out in a funeral home than it is in a bar. I think that's how you would read that if, if we wrote that in today's culture. For death is the destiny of every man. I've never been to a funeral where I didn't shed a tear. And I look up at that casket sitting up there and I don't realize that's my fate. And I look around at all the people suffering in the seats and I realize death is ugly and it's painful. And this life is very serious. The day that I have here today is a gift from God. I've never been to a funeral and not thought that. So he says, some of us need to go hang. I mean, maybe this week an assignment for some of us would be to open up our, our, you know, on the paper and look for a funeral and just go sit in it. Then he goes on to say, okay, see the balance here? Solomon doesn't run to extremes with these. Sorrow is better than what? Laughter is almost as, why well, don't know, you just disproving your point? Because a sad face is good for the heart. So it's also good to take life very seriously. So again, Solomon's not running to these extremes. What Solomon is saying is, listen, learn to cry. There's a time for that. Learn to laugh. There's a time for it. Live life well. Best way to say it is this. Let me sum chapter 10, verse 19 up this way. Some of us in this room party, and we party hard because life is all about me. Therefore, I'm looking for pleasure for me. On the converse, some of us don't party and some of us work really, really hard and take life very seriously because life is all about me. Because I want a good outcome. So it's all, so one way or another, we're both doing the same thing for different reasons. And what I think chapter 10 verse 19 does, it says, when I don't live thinking that life is all about me, I actually enjoy life as a gift. And what do we do with a gift? How many of you have kids? When you hand a child a gift on Christmas morning, what do they do? Don't they smile? Don't they beg to open it? Don't they want to play with it as soon as the paper is ripped off? So I think when we live life in the presence of God, saying, God, thank you for the gift of life, we enjoy it. I think that's what Solomon's getting at over and over through this book. True happiness cannot be found in anything else If it's not first found in God, because God is the author of life. He's given life. Life is his idea. I am not the author of life. I do not give myself life. Trying to find happiness in the soul, I'd say it this way, is like, and and by grasping the little pleasures of life, is like trying to build a sandcastle at the shore in in the breakers. You'd say, well, Adam, you can't do that. Exactly. The castle's never going to be built. Judah Smith, a pastor in Seattle, would say it this way. I just want to end with this, this thought. God wants you to be happy, but joy has to first be found in God. Joy has to first be found in the good news of Jesus Christ. And when joy is found there, you will find joy in everything else. One of the things I've, I've heard, you may have been there. You may have heard Christ, other people say it to you. They discredit Christianity because they say the church is full of hypocrites, right? You guys know it. Do not I say to people that say that? I say, that just proves Christianity. There isn't a one of us in this room that's not a hypocrite. Think about this. 
There isn't a one of you in this room that doesn't believe something to the core and find yourselves at times living it different. We all do it. That's why we need Jesus. So I say hypocrisy just proves that we need Jesus. What I think disproves Christianity is when people point in at the church and say, you have no joy. I'm not worried about hypocrisy. I am. I want to deal with it. I don't want to live that way. But what I'm really worried about is if someone says, you guys don't have joy. Because see, joy and Jesus are a package deal. Luke chapter 2, what did, what did, those of you know the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, what, is, what, is the, what do the angels say to the shepherds? What is Jesus going to be? Good news of great joy. Jesus and joy are a package deal. Judah Smith goes on to say it this way. We can get too serious about life, and it actually reflects poorly on the gospel because the gospel, by definition, is good news. There's nothing bad or sad about God's gospel. It's only good news. Psalm 51 is the verse that we're end with, and we're going to go to prayer. Psalm 51, chapter. David, I referenced earlier, that great king, he murders, he murders his best friend because he slept with his best friend's wife. Okay, so he's committed adultery, and he's had murder. He's lied about it. He covers it up. And finally, a man of God shows up and says, David, you're jacked up. God's not happy. God has turned his back on you. David weeps and David, David breaks down. And David then writes Psalm 51, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible on, on forgiveness and grace and mercy and God moving. It's a beautiful thing. Psalm 51, verse 12. A lot of us know it. If you've gone to the church, you know this verse. Psalm 51, 12 says, restore to me the joy of... Some of you quoted it wrong. I don't say, I mean, we, I quote it wrong. I was reading this recently in my quiet time. This one hit me this on my spiritual retreat. Actually, I took recently this verse. I, I always said, I restore to me the joy of my salvation. Guess what the verse says? The verse does not say that restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a, this is what we talked about last week, a willing spirit to sustain me. I mean, salvation was not my idea. Grace was not my idea. It wasn't. I'm not the originator or creator of salvation. I'm not the originator or creator of grace. It's God's and it's God's to give. And so David cries out. He says, doesn't restore my salvation. He's not self-absorbed. He's saying, God, I want to come back to you. I want to possess you. I want to be in relationship with you. And it's you that initiates that. So please, God, save me. Restore to me the, the beauty of your, your salvation. And grant me then a willing spirit. Because now I, wanna, I don't want to just live out of this dutiful obedience. I want to respond to you and sustain me. Keep me there. I think when we get this, we smile at life. We smile. We have joy, unspeakable joy. And we say, oh, happy day. I am glad to be alive today because the life that God has given me is a gift from him. And I get to live it. If I'm a Christian, I get to live it with him because he has initiated salvation with me. And now I get to be a willing participant in that life. That's beautiful. And it make us smile and laugh. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, this morning as we just pull some of these Proverbs out, my prayer is, is just as we close this service that um, I pray that there have some practical pointers that have helped people. They would walk out of here and say, man, yeah, I kind of get that stuff about criticism and I got some things I could really, I think, do in that that would help my life. And, and I hope people have walked out with stuff on leaders and, and they can start to realize, yeah, wow, 
I got some leaders in my life that really aren't too cool, and there's some principles I could go and live well and, and, and find, find help in that area. But God, may we not leave, out, leave this place this morning, none of us, thinking that we can do this life without you. God, may, may we all at, at some level just say, God, thank you for the gift of life. I'm not the captain of my ship like I wish I were or I think I am. But God, you have initiated salvation with me through Jesus. And God, as we respond to that, People in the room here that are Christians, as they respond to that, they daily, consistently come back to realign their life around it. May they be people that are filled with joy. And may they be people that smile at life, even when it's hard. As James chapter 1 says, we can still have deep, abiding joy. May we be people that laugh and have fun and do it in your presence Because what we're saying is, God, thank you for today. Thank you for the gift of life. May we not be people that run to partying and drunkenness and everything else because we're living for ourselves, but may we come into your presence and have fun in your presence because we're saying, God, thank you for the life that you've given me. God, for people that are here this morning that that may be far from you, that maybe would say, I'm not a Christian, would maybe say that um, uh, wherever they're at, God, would this be a morning where they say, you know what? The salvation thing, if that's all it is, saying I'm a sinner and I just got to embrace Jesus as the author of life, I'm all into that. Would it be cool to see some people this morning just say, hey, I'm in. I want to follow this person named Jesus and find life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.